If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Su. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards. Like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Rachel Zoe here, and we're going back to the Rachel Zoe Project for a very special takeover on my podcast, Climbing in Heels. Come with me as I take you back to season one to give you all the behind the scenes details and drama. I'll be joined by some special guests that'll be helping me share the real stories behind the most iconic moments in the show. So do not miss this special takeover of Climbing in Heels. It's going to be bananas. Listen to Climbing in Heels with Rachel Zoe on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. Art of the Hustle is a production of iHeartRadio. You're listening to The Art of the Hustle, the show that breaks down how some of the world's most fascinating people have hustled and learned their way into achieving great things. I'm your host, Jeff Rosenthal, founder of Summit. And on today's podcast, I had the opportunity to chat with my old friend, Dream Hampton. Dream is an award-winning filmmaker and writer from Detroit. Her most recent works include the Frameline feature documentary, Treasure, the HBO documentary, It's a Hard Truth, Ain't It?, the BET docuseries, Finding Justice, and Lifetime's Emmy-nominated Surviving R. Kelly, which broke ratings records and had wide and far-reaching impact. Dream is the 2019 recipient of Miss Foundation's Gloria Award and was named to the Time 100's Most Influential People. And she was also the 2020 recipient of the Peabody Award for Best Documentary. Her perspectives on justice, speaking truth to power, the revolution, the Black Lives Matter and criminal justice movements, and the normalization of injustice that most of us just aren't sensitive to are always mind expanding and on point. This podcast was recorded at the height of the George Floyd protests and Black Lives Matter protests that have gripped the nation and the world, and during the COVID pandemic stay-in-place orders that required us to record this podcast from our respective homes. Dream is a lifelong impact leader, and you'll hear her tell her personal story. She's been making change and prioritizing rights and justice for others since she was a kid. Dream focuses us on the issues that matter. I'm always surprised by Dream's candor and her humor and her directness. In this podcast, you're going to hear some of her history the reasons why she's motivated to do what she does. So please enjoy my conversation with Dream Hampton. Thank you so much for being on the podcast, Dream. I really appreciate it. I'm so happy to be here, Jeff. I'm so happy you're doing this. Oh, thank you. This is your jam. Like, this is what you do. You kind of walk up to people and have deep conversations in real life. So now you're doing it. It's true. (laughs) Online, on a podcast. That's awesome. Well, I get enthused when I meet people like yourself that are like, you know, driven by something on the edge of the spaces that you touch. And and then I typically do pepper people with like 20 questions before they realize what's happened. (laughs) It's facts. And where, where are you in the world right now? I am in Detroit, one of America's great cities, one of America's great black cities. But this is where I am right now. I've done most of my quarantining here. I'm going to venture out into the world soon I'm on a road trip. We'll see how that goes. Where are you going? Where's the road trip? Back to California? No, I'm going to go to a small East Coast island. Well, that sounds wonderful. I want to you know introduce the listeners a bit to you and your work. You are a born proud Detroit native. 
something that I've known as part of you and how you self-define since I met you. <laughs> yeah, it's the second thing I say. <laughs> I'm Dreamy Hampton from Detroit. I once had a friend who um, was, she's still my friend, but someone walked up to her and was trying to kind of gossip and pretend like they knew me. My friend said, oh, are you from Detroit? And the person goes, Dream is from Detroit? And <laughs> my friend goes, you don't know Dream, goodbye. Because <laughs> yeah, it's like, yes, the second thing I say. I didn't necessarily, I mean, like I've always, I didn't, that, I didn't know that it was that much of your identity. Is this common? Is this like, is this just you or is there like a core of Detroit, you know, kids? Yeah, it's a Detroit thing. It's, um, you know, the only people who are more annoying about their, where they're from in America are Brooklyn folks. Um, sure. And it's interesting because there's like similar trajectories. Like both of those places are places that used to be savage, like reputation wise. And there were narratives about both places, both black places, by the way. I didn't know that Brooklyn had a bigger black population. Detroit is like the largest black city in America, but Brooklyn has more black people. At least it did in the nineties. And I learned that because when I was living in New York, going to NYU film school, Mandela, after um, he got out of prison and before he was president, came to the U.S. He was still on the U.S. terrorist list, by the way, just a factoid. And he came to New York and the first place he wanted to touch down was Brooklyn because it has more Black people back then than anywhere else in America. And I didn't know that then. I was like, wait a minute, more than Detroit? So not percentage-wise. Detroit percentage-wise is the Blackest, but Brooklyn had more Black people just because there are more people in New York. And both Brooklyn and Detroit have experienced like all this gentrification and all these like rewriting of our narratives. And I lived in Brooklyn for 12 years, so. And, you know, born in Detroit, part of that, you know, awakening community. I've met so many incredible creatives, you know, in the world of music and art and fashion and, uh, and, and you know, that have, that have come out and like, you know, deep house. And I know you went to New York and attended NYU and studied film and had a whole career as, you know, a, a, a writer, uh, a, a pretty, you know, highly acclaimed and well-known hip hop journalist um, well before we became friends. Yeah, I never called myself a hip hop journalist though. I didn't, I was a film student who was writing and... Sometimes it was about hip hop, but mostly that was a way that my generation got to write about all kinds of things. So the very first thing I wrote was a source editorial. I was their photo editor and Dr. Dre had just beat up Dee Barnes, who was a TV host, mm-hmm. um, who you don't mm-hmm. hear about that much, but she, well, you do because Eminem, I guess, made a joke about her in a song. And then I guess they had to talk about it in his documentary, which I didn't see, which I'm sure is lovely. But I called him a bitch for beating up D-Barn. So from the very beginning of my career, it was like, it's on. <laughs> if you want to call it a career, I was 19 at The Source. I only worked at The Source for 18 months. So it just gets overstated. Like there were people who you. were writing a lot and they wrote way more than me. I just happened to be a good writer. <laughs> so <laughs> some of the stuff I wrote, people remember. And that's cool. Well, I mean, this is so, it's amazing that this was already part of your actions and your narratives as a 19 year old calling out, you know, Dre for being a bitch. Part of the reason I know about it is because you held him accountable publicly for it. And that's part of your narrative. I mean, you know, being named after the I Have a Dream speech. Now you're 19 years old and you're already taking these stances and these risks. Is this something that was a part of you when you were in high school? Is this were you in elementary school, like standing up for students that didn't have the opportunities that they should? First, I stand up for my brother. I remember him like getting his twin stolen. My dad, I had a stepdad who I loved and lived with me from when I was two until he died. But my dad, who was also very much in my life, on one of those weekend visits, bought us matching swins. And by that next weekend, my brother, these guys around the corner, these bullies had taken his swin from him. So I went around the corner and hit one of them in the ankle with the bike chain and it drew blood. Damn. I was was like a little gangster. I'm eight years old. My brother was seven. I don't know. I, you're, you're like, you know, my daughter, by the way, is hardwired a completely opposite superpower, which is she's super kind. And, and I, and she was born that way. Like when she was an infant, like she was kind, you know, 
And I think that whatever I am, (laughs) I was that from the beginning, you know, I can remember Mm -hmm. my mom who's white, like walking around Detroit with me, us. I actually remember, I have this vivid memory of being in the mall with my mom and like, we had to return some clothes and the sales lady was looking at her. She was an older white lady and she was looking at my mom who was a, you know, in her early 20s with these two black kids and she was looking at her judgmentally. And when we returned the clothes, she wanted to sniff them. And I, I like, I couldn't wow. even see over the counter, but I like butted in and I was like, we said we didn't wear them. Like, <laughs> 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 so yeah, that was me. <laughs> That's awful. So you you run you run a little hot. Mm-hmm. I don't want to forever though. I want to um go away and and do whatever people do, like go to Bali and become chill or whatever. Yeah, <laughs> I want to do that. Like I don't, and I do do that. I have dinner parties and I have people over and we have fun. And, and I'm not always in warrior stance, but I do have that you know that vibe. If I need to. And when you started taking that warrior stance and applying it to, you know, your creative output, and you're also very resistant to any of the credit that I'm going to give you or people typically give you because you have, you know, a pretty always on bullshit meter. Like you are, you know, a a social activist. I'm sure you have a problem with that. You'd be like, oh, I'm not really like I do all this stuff too. But, but, uh, you know, that, that being said, I want to know, like, when was the first time you took this and started applying it in the world? Yeah, this kind of feels like therapy because I was in the eighth grade, so I'm not eight anymore. Now I'm like almost 13. And I remember we had a science project and I had done, had one of those big poster boards. So I had done my science project and it must have been, I think it was Stevie Wonder. He was like, I think he was on Soul Train, but it could have been Dick Clark. I'm a kid in the 70s. Well, by then it's the 80s. I saw him talking about apartheid in South Africa. I now know, because I do this kind of work sometimes, that someone like Harry Belafonte, who had been pulled aside by someone like Winnie Mandela, would have talked to Stevie and explained to him what the struggle was and what the calls to action were. And Stevie was talking about boycotting companies that wouldn't divest from apartheid South Africa. And, you know, and explaining that it was their version of segregation. He just explained it in a way that it clicked in my eighth grade brain. And he said Shell was one of the companies. And so there was a gas station not far, like walking distance from my house. So I flipped over my science poster board, my science project poster board, and put, you know, boycott Shell. Oh, my God. And it was the winter. I do remember that because it's cold as shit in Detroit. And I was standing out on the corner by myself, a one girl protest, probably way too young. I don't know. Like I would never let my daughter be out at (laughs) anyway. I remember people actually come And by the way, like the poor guy who owned that franchise had nothing to do with it, but I didn't understand. Of course. (laughs) Grownups were like asking me about it and I was trying to explain. (laughs) So yeah, that was First action, I guess. And and by the way, I still employ those strategies, which was like boycott, divest, and sanction. And those are still... So like when Rick Ross came out with this rapey song about like drugging uh-huh. a girl, putting um, whatever in her champagne and, and uh-huh. raping her, then um, an ultraviolet, this organization called for action around targeting his Reebok campaign, which is a much smarter strategy than targeting Rick Ross. Like, you know, we're in a a time when people feel like they can't be shamed. And when you bring up stuff like this, it's just PC. But from that, you know, I learned why talk to Rick Ross. He's almost 40. He knows that these lyrics are rapey. We're going to go straight to Reebok, you know, which is like, there was no point of talking to DeClerc. That's what Winnie Mandela and them knew. They were like, DeClerc cannot be shamed. You know, this apartheid regime cannot be shamed. The only way to like have movement on this is to have economic kind of penalties um, that are, that are connected to this, which if, if I may pivot, you know, in this moment, why this call around like getting untangling cities from these really like kind of gangster cop union union contracts. Like you have a city like New York mm. that pays literally like 
tens of millions of dollars a year in misconduct, you know, claims. But mm-hmm. it never comes out of cops uni- cop unions or cop salary. Like, they never feel it. They're shielded yeah. in these ways. You're, we literally end up, as taxpayers, paying for their bad behavior. And there would be 100%. Yeah, so there'd be incentives for actual change as well as defund the police, which is, a, you know, it's a, a demand that's being made from the streets that I completely agree with. But, you know, thinking about the big picture, I'm also looking at unions, which I know are incredibly powerful. And I can apply this thing I learned from like Stevie Wonder on Soul Train mm-hmm. <laughs> in the eighth grade. Dude. Well, I think that we've lost a bit of that narrative of practical radicalism. And I'm not saying that that's it doesn't negate anything that's happening right now because we are in an unbelievable moment in history and like things that you know progressives that have been working on these issues for years thought would take decades can happen now right like we've like these moments there's energy to harness to accomplish really important things but to your point around you know the divest and the movement around you know not working with south africa as an apartheid state I'd heard so many different reasons for, you know, the the series of events that had to occur for that to finally happen and for that to break. But someone recently told me that when Coca-Cola stopped going to South Africa, that was like a huge moment. Yeah. When when Coke doesn't want to play with you anymore, you know, you really have to re-examine some, some of your dogma. Yeah, for sure. I mean, and by the way, my dad, who wasn't particularly here, I'm thinking about my stepdad. I called them both my dad. He was a huge jazz head. I learned like mm-hmm. about Monk and Bird and everyone from him, you know, Mingus. And he loved George Benson, you know? That was like one of the few... My mom was a rock and roll kid, but my dad, he loved jazz. And George Benson was the jazz guitarist that we listened to. And George Benson did not follow that Stevie Wonder call to not perform in apartheid-segregated South African audiences, right? And my dad, I remember him just saying, well, that's it. Like, no more George Benson records in the house. And he was, again, not political. Like, I don't remember him talking about any election. I, I knew they voted, but I don't remember his opinion on Reagan, his opinion on whatever. But he totally stopped listening to George Benson records for a while. So, yes, there are like these big companies, but then there are all these ways that, you know, that's the sanction part, right? Like, you know, what does it look like to have to pay a price for and not to be it's forever like set aside and cast aside? Like, I believe in redemption and I believe in you having space to think about the bad stuff you did and come back out of your corner. But my dad put yeah. John Vincent in a corner, you know? We'll be back with more Art of the Hustle after the break. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to the one and only Ryan Seacrest. Love the connection to people. I think at the core... What I get excited about, what gets me up in the morning is connecting with people in an unscripted, unvarnished way is getting to to say something to them, hear back from them, know that I'm part of the routine. And I look forward to getting on the air. I look forward to it. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math and Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcast. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, then look no further than the Marketing School podcast hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast in the United States and number 15 on business in the United States. And it has amazing guests such as Alex Hermosi, Layla Hermosi, Cody Sanchez. We pull in these amazing interviews with other people that are not only great marketers, but actual operators. And the icing on the cake is Neil and myself were also operators as well. So we share learnings from the trenches. We share secrets that we otherwise wouldn't be sharing with other people. And we also share other advantages that will help you get ahead of your competition. So all you have to do is listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, Rachel Zoe here, and we're going back to the Rachel Zoe Project for a very special takeover on my podcast, Climbing in Heels. 
Come along with me as I take you back to season one to give you all the behind the scenes details and of course, drama. I'll be joined by some very special guests that'll be helping me break it all down. From award season nightmares to fashion week insanity, you'll get the real stories behind some of the most iconic moments in the show. The Rachel Zoe Project definitely changed my life and career in so many ways. The show definitely captured some of the most amazing moments, but also some of the absolute worst. I made the show for all the fashion lovers out there, and I'm so happy that people still watch it and love it so much. So do not miss this special takeover on Climbing in Heels. It's going to be bananas. Not believe I just said that. Listen to Climbing in Heels with Rachel Zoe on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I want to give you credit that in our relationship, you've always given me the opportunity to learn and correct behaviors versus calling me out in public. You've always kind of given me the space. And I and I find that when people are attacked, they defend. And when people are, you know, confronted with their own hypocrisy or they have to examine their own bias, they often change. Is this something that you learned or is this something that's innate in you? Yeah. I mean, well, first of all, I'm not the police. I make mistakes every single day. I get called out. I've been like deplatformed in certain ways. I've experienced like a mob attack, you know, like if something is public, then I don't believe in the private call-in. You know, if if Rick Ross went into a studio and no, usually artists aren't in a studio by themselves, you know, there are people around, all their little team, their yes men, a bunch of people listen to the fucking song. And if all those people, no one said, yo, I don't think you really need to have a chick passed out to have sex with her dog. Like, you have a lot of money. That's not a great look, Rick. But yeah, like someone could have said <laughs> that to you. Like, so when it gets to the point where I have to hear this bullshit, that yes. then it's public, then it's on, then there's no like private calling in, right? But then th- there are things that happen between us or in communities that don't quite make it to that level that, yeah, for sure, you can like, you can flag stuff. You can be like, yo, this is happening in the community. And not only do you not want this to become a problem for optics, but it's really like a terrible thing, period. You're young and maybe like Rick Ross also wasn't young. If that was Chief Keef, <laughs> back then Chief Keef might have been like, 17 or whatever if he i get it yeah yeah if he had a lyric like that then i would have been like okay maybe we need to talk to fucking chief keith rick ross had been a ceo at that point he'd been a correction officer he'd been you know he's a grown man you know you're younger than me and you were trying something really new and hard of course you knew you were going to get criticized for it but when there are things that i can weigh in on i also don't want to be that person i'm really there to have an alternative to the other work that I do, which is hard. Like when I'm in that community and summit, I'm like so excited for the way that you all approach the table and like all these new things that I'm like having my mind changed about, you know, convening just community period for fun, you know, cause I'm used to being at conferences. In fact, I've taken like some of the ethics of summit into these other spaces. Like, yo, we're having these like long meetings with people who do hard work and we feed them like crap. Can we mm-hmm. elevate our game around care? And that's absolutely something that I started thinking about at being in some of the things that you've hosted, you know, just that the way we love people is like, you know, we show great care and how we prepare for their arrival. I wanted to ask you, you know, what was, you know, I know that you produced, you know, a short film that won Best Short Film in Sundance in 2002. And I just want to know about that transition period. So you had a career yeah. in a sense, and then you transitioned. And I know that you studied it and you always self-defined as a filmmaker. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, I, I thought it'd be really helpful for me. Frankly, I'm fascinated to learn and know. And for the listeners, you know, like that period of metamorphosis. For me, I think of it as actually kind of a derailment. But I also, now that I'm gentle with myself or trying to be, there are a couple of things. One is that I'm a parent, right? And Mm -hmm. I became a parent in my final year at NYU. I wanted to be a single parent. My daughter's dad wanted to get married. And I was like, no, thank you. (laughs) Thanks for asking. (laughs) (laughs) I just don't like when toothbrushes touch. Anyway. Um, (laughs) I wanted to do that and I did it. And Michelle Obama had this quote that I don't like her when they go low, you go high quote. I'm like, fuck that. Like, Mm -hmm. let's get into it in the mud. 
But I do like this quote about you can have it all, just not all at once. And that's true. You know, that was one of the things that was revealed in her book, that she was Barack's boss. And then when it was time to have family, like children require care is the long way of of saying it. I had also had this other first ladies. This is so funny that I'm like admitting to this stuff. But I had this other first ladies quote in my head, which is, you know, if you don't get raising your children right, nothing much else matters, which was a Jackie O quote. And so I I just remember like wanting to full on do the motherhood thing, like as hard as I could. And and so that meant that like, yeah, I had a later start to this dream that I had of being a filmmaker. Writing is something I could do, you know, as I help my daughter with her homework. There came a time though, quite frankly, when writing stopped paying. And then around that time, and this is awful again to say, but activism started to pay. And what I mean by that, and it's actually quite a controversial thing that's happening in the movement right now, and it shouldn't be because this work should be valued. But for the longest time, like when I was doing, one of the things I did when I got to New York City was I understood that the NYPD were terrorizing communities. Coming from a Black city, I'm not saying that the police were perfect, But our Black mayor had run on a campaign in the 70s to institute residency requirements. So interactions with the police didn't feel like they would end in death, right? Absolutely what was happening to New York when I got there in the early 90s. Giuliani's gang squads were jumping out, these big, burly, Long Island white boys in, like, plain clothes, just throwing kids up against the wall, going through their backpacks. It, It was ending all kinds of ways, you know? And so my friends and I couldn't stand that. And we started doing cop watches. We were inspired by the Panthers in Oakland who would observe from a legal distance interactions with the police. And I was at NYU, so I had access to cameras. This is before camera phones. And we used to like do these patrols at like one and two in the morning in Brooklyn. And we would do cop watch, right? We were doing this work and there was no support. There was no nonprofit that was talking about criminal justice, right? Mm -hmm. And after about like 15, 20 years of doing that work, all of a sudden foundations were like, wow, our system is broken and we want to invest in reforming that system, right? I happen to be there for that and could be in conversations about hopefully pushing past reform. So that became like a track that I ended on, ended up on for a while. And then finally I got back to film. I mean, you know, everyone is doing, by the way, this is what all kids are doing all the time now. Like no one is a single thing. Everyone is a hyphenate. Yeah. Um, no one has a job. I haven't had a job since 96. No one does anymore. So I was just like, I guess early on that curve of like having a million jobs, like being motivated to be out in the streets and saying, this is a deep injustice and we want to do something about it. And we formed an organization. Our organization was a chapter of Malcolm X grassroots movement. And not only did we raise awareness about police terror, but we, you know, did work around political prisoners in the United States, which, which got us into prison work. So by the time I'm in LA, like, you know, seven years ago, I, and working with Mike De La Rocha, who I met through Summit at base camp, mm-hmm. that work is being funded. Like, there's a way to say, wow, yeah. we're just going to focus on this for a couple of years and pass a couple of propositions in California, work with people who are working to pass these props. And 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 it happened like that. And then I told De La, which is what I call Mike De La Rocha, after we built his company, um, Revolve, and then we helped John Legend launch his thing, Free America, and Jay told me he wanted to get involved in prison stuff. And then I was like, you know, I got to go back to being an artist. Like I could see this being, I could look up 20 years from now and this be the thing, the only thing that I've done. And then the R. Kelly project came up and, and I did ended up doing like three projects in 2018 that all came out in 2019. And I want to talk about those three projects, but focusing on what you just said about how, you know, the slashy, like nobody has a job and, you know, you're in all these different creative disciplines and just sort of like finding your way. I think that the future of work is being revolutionized, you know, in this moment. It was already moving faster than I think that we're capable of sensing. But, you know, now here with COVID, with, you know, automation and globalization and, you know, debt, the failing of four-year universities really preparing many people for the job markets, 
prisons and military. And like, there's just all of these, you know, populations that are coming into the world at a moment where it feels like the wall is especially greased for everybody trying to like find their way in, in that sort of era of their career. Do you think about this? Do you think about like hope and the future of work and people that are sort of in that 16 to 24 age range right now? Absolutely. I mean, I think about it in like a longer scope too. I think, you know, Gen X is, we are not as big a gen as the generations we're sandwiched between, right? Boomers are more, like my mom isn't a boomer. She also is a kind of transitional generation. So, but that generation just before my mom, boomers, which her parents would have been. And then you guys, millennials, are huge generations that are both of your, in your own ways are bringing about like enormous change. Right. And I was worried for a minute. I was like, are millennials just going to like navel gaze and, <laughs> and be narcissists. And then y'all have like, it's no, it's like, I started to see it on Tumblr. It was this space. Um, I was doing a film about treasure and um, was which is about a transgender girl here in Detroit who was killed, and and I found all of this amazing conversation and dialogue, and quite frankly, education, peer to peer education happening on Tumblr, and I was like, wow, this is an amazing space. Like these kids are actually giving themselves the political education. I mean, we did this too in our little book clubs, and I had amazing mentors. Um, from the Black radical left tradition who shaped me and and helped me think and gave me books to read, gave me Walter Rodney and Fanon and, you know, all of my amazing radical left stuff. But, like, here was this, like, place on the internet where you didn't have to be in a room and you could talk to someone in, you know, South Africa or Nigeria and they'd be talking to someone in Brooklyn or in Kansas City. And Mm. I was like, this is an amazing space. And so... To see it grow into, you know, I look at millennials, particularly Black millennials, as Oscar Grant being the first major kind of like moment when I realized, wow, this this generation can like change things that we've been needing to change for decades and generations and haven't been able to. And so I couldn't be more inspired in this moment to see all the things that everyone else is seeing, which is like a multiracial, multigenerational coalition coming together and not being afraid to say something as simple as Black Lives Matter, which is not even Black power, which is like what my dad and them would have said. Yeah. And I still believe in building Black power. But it was a very non-controversial statement to begin with. And so to see people move off of whatever nutty stuff they were saying five years ago to clearly understanding um, that, you know, Black folks deserve like, you know, their full humanity and dignity in this country is amazing. And, and that it's a systemic and structural problem. Like, so they have, they're bringing language to the game that an analysis that is just dope. And I'm so happy to see it. When it comes to the movement leaders in the streets today, you know, um, in the protests for George Floyd and a lot of the change that's happening, like in the present moment, I, 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 got, I can't take credit generationally. It's Gen Y, you know, it's the kids that are actually younger. I'm 35. So like, you know, it's these people that are in their mid twenties and late teens that are leading a lot of these coalitions and, and movements. I think about that 17 year old who for almost nine minutes filmed the murder of George Floyd, unflinching, that she didn't turn off her camera, that here were these, you know, police officers, more than like three of them just kind of casually witnessing this murder and at any point could have like attacked her. We've definitely seen that. You know, we've seen the guy who filmed Eric Garner, who also said, I can't breathe, who filmed his murder. He was you know, arrested. He just got out of jail, right? So I don't know if she knew that that was something that could possibly happen to her and if it was bravery or she or naivete, but she held that camera and she forced the world to look at this video. There have been arguments amongst Black folks about like trauma porn and like we've been looking at videos of, you know, Black people being brutalized at least since Rodney King. Before that, back in the early part of the 20th century, there were postcards of lynchings. Mm-hmm. So this whole evidence of the violence against us in its own way gets fetishized. At the same time, there's no denying that there was something particularly potent about this particular video 
that move people in a way that other things haven't. So we can debate whether or not these videos should be shared. A lot of people are like, stop sharing these things on my timeline. But that video that that 17-year-old girl shot got people onto the streets. Unbelievable bravery. Yes. And because they've been in spaces like Tumblr and reading the kind of abolitionist framework that, you know, the women of critical resistance came up with decades ago, literally the you know mid-90s, that Angela Davis and them are writing Our Prisons Necessary. Ruthie Gilmore was in the New York Times last year writing about this. You have people like Miriam Kaba, she's at Prison Culture on Twitter, who's been talking to us about abolition for a long time. So they actually aren't talking about reform and nor should they be. Like I earlier talked about it being a broken system, but what they will rightly say is that, no, this system is operating exactly how it was intended to operate. It's an extension of slavery and it needs to be abolished. And Frederick Douglass and, you know, abolitionists from the 18th century didn't get up there and say, oh, we need to reform slavery. They said we need to abolish it. And that's what's in front of us right now. That's why it's a truly revolutionary moment. I'm just, you know, excited about it. Art of the Hustle will be right back after this short break. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, stories from the frontiers of marketing. This week, I'm talking to the one and only Ryan Seacrest love the connection to people. I think at the core, what I get excited about, what gets me up in the morning is connecting with people in an unscripted, unvarnished way is getting to to say something to them, hear back from them, know that I'm part of the routine. And I look forward to getting on the air. I look forward to it. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, then look no further than the Marketing School podcast hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast in the United States and number 15 on business in the United States. And it has amazing guests such as Alex Hormozzi, Layla Hormozzi, Cody Sanchez. We pull in these amazing interviews with other people that are not only great marketers, but actual operators. And the icing on the cake is Neil and myself were also operators as well. So we share learnings from the trenches. We share secrets that we otherwise wouldn't be sharing with other people. And we also share other advantages that will help you get ahead of your competition. So all you have to do is listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, Rachel Zoe here, and we're going back to the Rachel Zoe Project for a very special takeover on my podcast, Climbing in Heels. Come along with me as I take you back to season one to give you all the behind the scenes details and, of course, drama. I'll be joined by some very special guests that'll be helping me break it all down. From award season nightmares to fashion week insanity, you'll get the real stories behind some of the most iconic moments in the show. The Rachel Zoe Project definitely changed my life and career in so many ways. The show definitely captured some of the most amazing moments, but also some of the absolute worst. I made the show for all the fashion lovers out there, and I'm so happy that people still watch it and love it so much. So do not miss this special takeover on Climbing in Heels. It's going to be bananas. Not believe I just said that. Listen to Climbing in Heels with Rachel Zoe on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I think defund police, um, you know, it, it is triggering for people that want to support police. And when you think about the culture of policing, the things that I don't think that the defund police movement is interested in disbanding or defunding is like true public safety. But the idea of prison was supposed to be about reforming people, not punishing people. You know, the idea that we are going to lock people in cages and take away their dignity and their rights and their opportunity is only a drag on our society. It actually has a triple, quadruple, infinite cost to us personally, right, as taxpayers and as citizens. Like, 
you know, for me, it's always been pretty clear that hurt people hurt people, you know, and I'm, I know that there's huge statistics around violent crime and, you know, sexual crime, it, that, that the vast majority of those are carried out by people who have been violently or sexually assaulted. And so here we are now in this moment where we all have trauma at this moment with COVID, with the protests, you know, with Trump presidencies, the Band-Aid's just fully getting pulled off now. Perhaps we'll take the mental health crisis that we're all going through a little more seriously. And like you said, Black Lives Matter, it's not, you know, I think Michael Chase said it terrifically, you know, in his, in his stand-up special. He's like, he didn't say they're more important than yours. It's just that they matter. It's like a base level that is being asked for. You're right. It is a baseline. I do want to like speak to a couple of things you said. I don't want to get too digressive, but we, I connected actually to like decades of kind of self-help books and the secret and all, all this kind of magical thinking that we've all invested in. I don't know if it's because of Oprah yeah. or Tony Robbins. I don't know who's responsible for it, but yes, there is the micro about hurt people, hurt people, but I don't know where Dick Cheney was hurt. You know, but I know that he's responsible for millions of uh, deaths, and I know that mm-hmm. he's incredibly violent, and I know that he has not stood trial for any of his crimes. And I know that prisons have never been a place of rehabilitation or reform. Any rehabilitation that's happened in those prisons have happened from either deep Olympian strength and guidance, which is what Malcolm X, you know, had in his relationship with Elijah Muhammad, or like self-organizing inside, you know, by the people that are inside, right? That these systems themselves are sadistic. To be a little digressive again, in my quarantine, I started rewatching The Tudors just because I was like, let me watch Henry Cavill again. Like, he's cute. Let me watch him. And um, and I I was like looking at, you know, Henry VIII and the tower and not only that the tower, but like these deeply sadistic practices that are, you know, written into the DNA of colonial settlers who came here from England and brought these practices that they were burning Lutherans alive, that they were like stretching people out in public. Not forget the beheadings. They were quartering people. All of this stuff that like is in this particular, and I know it's not historically accurate. People who like know that history, you know, get into the details about the Tudors, but these things are this question of punishment being built into that society as an ethic, it doesn't, first of all, exist in all societies. I know that you know that Native American practice, and I wish I could say which tribe it is right now, but that tribe that says, you know, when someone does something that violates the community, they put them in the center and they tell them all of the best things they've ever done and their best qualities, right? So, like, there are all kinds of ways to imagine transformation. You know, I've written a thing mm-hmm. about the anatomy of an apology and how powerful it would have been to watch Brett Ka- to if Brett Kavanaugh had apologized to this girl to this mm-hmm. woman you know and to the inner girl inside of her that was clearly still so wounded instead of putting on this like trumpian performance of pseudo masculinity of like doubling down and doing some terrible Matt Damon impression of himself in the moment like you know like it was ridiculous the performance he gave and this is a supreme court judge like the you know the lies that america has about the impartiality of judges and the objectivity and the wisdom of them was totally you know belied in in watching that kavanaugh performance and how powerful it would have been if he had apologized how powerful it would have been if r kelly had apologized instead of whatever he did with gail king so a performance. Exactly. And by the way, I wouldn't have mind a performance of an apology. Like that would have moved like the culture, even even if they didn't mean it, it would have moved the mm-hmm. culture. The same thing with defund the police. No, they mean defund the police. Mary McCarver wrote this amazing piece. It doesn't matter how triggering it is. Like, so what? So is Blue Lives Matter. That's triggering as heck. And we're not worried. Like, you're w- triggered by our words while we're watching you, like, not just kill George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, but then there's a whole movement uprising, and then you shoot a man two times in the back. In the back. When you gave mm-hmm. Dylan Roof, who had just killed... You know, nine people who were praying in a church, you drove him to Burger King before you took him to jail. So 
Mm-hmm. We're not going to ha- engage in these conversations about like politeness and what you need to hear to move things forward. Defund the police means exactly that. Now, abolish the police means something different. Sure. And I'm fine for that call, too. I mean, in Rome, if we're going to keep it to movies and shit, you know, the reason why Russell Crowe's character doesn't live within the city walls, he lives out on a farm, is because soldiers were literally not welcome within the walls of Rome. It was considered uncivilized. There were no arms in the city of Rome. There were no police and military. They were not allowed inside the city of Rome. You know, white supremacists, which is anyone who's ever been taught about Western culture being supreme, want to look to their own history. They can look to the city of Rome for an example of no police, right? But to fund the police means to look at your own city budget, to nerd out and look at your city budget, which is public, and see that in almost all cases, uh, way too much money is being spent on policing. And it doesn't keep people safe. It doesn't even keep victims of gender and, and domestic violence safe. Well, and, and the incentives drive the behavior. And so you're creating a greater pool of people who have a greater incentive to see more funds go towards more policing and more militarization and more criminalization, which fills our jails further, which creates even more conditions for more criminalization. And so that's just like incredible follow-on effect that just crushes us. What's all investing from? Like, you're not spending money on education. We defunded the schools to fund the, you know, the police. We defunded, we defund schools and sports programs all over this country, you know, all the time based on economic conditions. It's not like... And then we put the police in certain schools, which costs money. So long before we mm-hmm. were, like, having to deal with a post-9-11 TSA, Black kids were dealing with that in their own schools. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm so appreciative of you taking the time, and this is such a <laughs> fascinating conversation. It gets it helps us get to know you and your philosophy and what drives you and where your passions lie. Tell us the the work you're doing now with Color of Change and normalizing injustice. I think it's a great tie into what we're talking about to this piece of your work. Normalizing injustice is a report that um, I Color of Change. I'm a board member of, and I I, I work with them on the Hollywood engagement work. And Hollywood engagement means it actually is kind of the point of this report on police procedurals. You know, there there came a time when police departments and their unions across the country looked at what was happening in the country in the 70s and said, you know what, there's an anti-authoritarian, anti-hero kind of streak that's happening, whether it's Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kids or Watergate or... Kent State, the National Guard, gunning down four white kids at a university in Ohio, like you could poll the average American in the 70s and they would have said, no, we don't trust the police. It actually wasn't the Panthers that started calling the police pigs. It was white anti-war protesters. And and so they said, we got to rehab our image. And they moved out to Hollywood and they began consulting on shows. And we went from having shows about defendants, I mean, uh, uh, defense attorneys, like Colombo to all of these police procedurals that valorize cops, that don't even describe the work they do, that show them breaking the rules again and again. There's a bomb ticking. So no, you don't get a warrant. You knock down the door. You don't knock. Mm. And we're saying that those have real life consequences and have raised generation of, of people who go into this thinking it's the cowboy job. It also tells us a huge lie, which is that police work is inherently dangerous and fatal. And it's not. It's not one of the top 10 most dangerous jobs in the country. In New York, mm-hmm. it's not top 10. And the NYPD is is huge. It's, it's larger than most country, than some countries' armies. Window washers. And this is about data, not about our anecdotal evidence or some, you know, some big sure. story that got blown up in the news about a cop being killed. Window washers are have more dangerous jobs than cops. Cab drivers, garbage collectors, nationally loggers, <laughs> random. I don't know if that's like mm. a Portland, Oregon thing, but loggers are top 10 fatal jobs. Cops aren't. And so we just see it a non-fact whenever we get into this conversation. And it's based on our ideas. Americans learn about stuff from TV. And police yeah. procedurals have been normalizing injustice forever. So we did a report on it. And we presented it in January when everyone, we were still talking about Russia and Trump and all stuff that, you know, should have had a different outcome, but no one was really paying attention to our report. And in this moment, 
it's being used all throughout the industry. And it's amazing to see. I just, I think, first of all, there are way too many cop shows. I think that he's the, the, the cop is the most developed character on television. And yeah. I would like, I would like to, you know, abolish cop shows. I mean, can we have, <laughs> can, it's a crisis of imagination. I mean, trust me. I've I get it. Every possible angle, the nuance, the bad cop, the good cop. You know, we've seen it like we, just like we had a bunch of vampire shows and then all of a sudden they're like, let's bring on the zombies. We've never pivoted away from cop shows since they started like in the late 70s. Well, Dream, I love you. You're amazing. <laughs> You're such an inspiration. Thank you so much for taking the time to jump on the podcast with us. It, for the listeners, colorofchange.org. You can go and see a complete report on normalizing injustice and dream. I'm certain we're going to see decades of more <laughs> thought provoking and confrontational work from you that'll have huge impacts on the culture. I want to do something with ghetto gastro. Where we just go around the country and have amazing meals together. Or the world, when we can go back around the world and have amazing meals together. That'll be my show. <laughs> so- that's a great show. I mean, that's the next generation Anthony Bourdain. It's just dream and ghetto gastro cruising the world. <laughs> It's what I do in my actual life when I'm not being all confrontational, as you know. So it's so good yes. to hear your voice, Jeff. I can't wait to see you again. I can't wait when, when we all get to see each other again. Me too, but you. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards. Like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Rachel Zoe here, and we're going back to the Rachel Zoe Project for a very special takeover on my podcast, Climbing in Heels. Come with me as I take you back to season one to give you all the behind the scenes details and drama. I'll be joined by some special guests that'll be helping me share the real stories behind the most iconic moments in the show. So do not miss this special takeover of Climbing in Heels. It's going to be bananas. Listen to Climbing in Heels with Rachel Zoe on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts.